The following is a message from Parkview Church in Iowa City, Iowa. More information about Parkview is available at www.parkviewchurch.org. All right. Hey, it's a great honor to be with you on Fall Kickoff Sunday. Um, If you were with us a few years ago, we did this outside. That was a blast. How many of you were there on that day? There's like 2,000 people outside. Uh, Since then, we've had a few floods, right? We've got a berm. We've got grass coming. We were borderline. This is a great year for growing grass. If we'd have known this, we might have been able to do it outside today, but that's our hope for next year. But thanks for being here today. If you are new with us, I especially welcome you. Please stay, grab lunch with us. It'd be great to get to know you. So if you have a Bible, you can turn to the book of James. And we are going to be in this book for um, a lot of this fall. Uh, so it's, a, it's an excellent book of the Bible, and I'm excited to get to share it with you today. So um, what we're going to jump into right away, James, you'll find out, is a book that doesn't mess around. He kind of gets right at it. He'll jump from topic to topic, but every topic is incredibly relevant in our lives. That's what I really like about James. And um, today he's going to jump into hardships and trials that we face in our lives. And I know I need to be sensitive today because there are some of you who are grieving the loss of an interstate football game. And so I try, you know, I just try to very timely, very timely for some of you today. So uh, for many, though, there are many signs of rejoicing in here. But, but way beyond, like, football teams doing good or bad, there, if we were to honestly sit down and talk with each other, uh, good chances are there are trials, either in our lives right now or in somebody that we care a lot about. So today's message is just going to be spot on. It's what we, what we all need. So... Let me start us with prayer, and I'd like to give you a chance to pray first. If you would pray and just ask God to, to speak to you and to give you something that you need in your life, a truth that you need in your life this week. So could you just quietly ask Jesus to teach you this morning? <clears throat> And then if you would, could you pray for me to be clear and to speak directly from God's word? God, we love you. I thank you that what we're ready to do right now is not an academic exercise. This isn't just an intellectual reading of something that was written long ago, but we're opening the very words of God. And you love us. You are here with us. And you have great truths to teach us today. So please teach us and help us put to practice what you show us. In your great name we pray. Amen. All right. So um, we were kicking around this series, the team of us. Like, what do you call this series? When you look at the book of James, if you've ever ever read it before, we just love the words faith works. Because it has two meanings. Faith works means when you live a life of faith, when you live the life that James is going to be pushing you to live with faith, resolute faith in Jesus Christ, you're going to find uh, that this life works. It's a very effective life. And that's what we need. We don't come here on Sunday mornings to throw away an hour of our week. Like we are here to learn truth. And so we want a real faith that's going to work and help us through tough times in our lives. And so that's for sure. But the other thing you're going to see the book of James do is that James is going to spur you to do something. So faith works also means that faith is active. And we live in a world today that is absolutely tired of just hearing Christian ideas and Christian thoughts. They're ready to see Christians in action. This is definitely a book of action. There are 108 verses in James. 59 of them are commands, okay? That's like every other verse. He's, he's on us 
to do something. If our faith in Jesus Christ is real, he's going to be urging us, then let's do something. Let's go. It's go time. And so I love this book. Um, A couple more things, too. Again, these are just details to help you understand what we're going to be reading today. It was written by, obviously, a man named James, okay? And there's several Jameses in the New Testament. This one is the half-brother of Jesus Christ. Let me explain that a little bit. That might be a, what do you mean, half-brother? Like, so Jesus, when you read through the Bible, uh, is fully God and fully man. And so Mary was his human mother, but God is his father. And so after Mary had Jesus, she and her earthly husband, Joseph, had other children. And so Joseph, or James, is Jesus' younger brother. Can you imagine a tough calling, a tougher calling? Like, why can't you be like Jesus, you know? Why can't your room be as clean as Jesus's? Why don't you get the grades that Jesus gets, you know, and all that? So you might expect there'd be a little sibling rivalry. We don't know details of the home life, but we do know when Jesus was doing ministry on the planet, James was not a believer. James didn't buy the whole Messiah thing. I've given you some passages in, the, in your outline where you can study on your own. But let me just summarize a couple of them. In Mark chapter 3, there's a time where Jesus' ministry is exploding. People are responding to his teaching and his miracles. And he's in a home, and the home is just packed with people just trying to hear Jesus and get around him. And it says that James and his family shows up there almost to want to just haul Jesus away. It's like, come on, stop playing this Messiah thing. You know, almost like they're embarrassed for the family. Like, come on, Jesus, get off your high horse. Let's, let's go. Clear unbelief in Jesus' relationship with James. You see another clear one in John chapter 7, uh, where, where James is kind of like prodding Jesus. They, they lived in Galilee. It was kind of a remote area. There was a big festival going on in the big city around Jerusalem. So he's even prodding Jesus. says, hey, why don't you, why, if this is all for real, why don't you go down to Jerusalem and show everybody there all the things you can do? But the line was that, that, um, that James had no belief. He did not believe in Jesus. And so uh, that we don't understand why, but we do know that there was a time in James's life where a switch was flipped and he went from complete unbelief in Jesus Christ to absolute belief in him. And so maybe some of you have a story like that too where there were seasons of your life uh, where you just walked away from God, you rejected God. James was one of those guys until, until a very powerful moment in his life. So if you trace the life of Jesus, he taught, uh, he performed miracles, he grew very popular, but there was an opposition that hated him. So Jesus was arrested on false charges, he was crucified on a cross, And then three days later, he rose again from the dead. And in 1 Corinthians 15, we're told that Jesus appeared and lists all the people that he showed up to, including one time he appeared to 500 people at the same time, just giving clear evidence that he was alive from the dead. But in 1 Corinthians 15, 7, it specifically says that Jesus showed himself resurrected to James. And I just wonder, that's all we know, we don't know if Jesus rolled up to James's house, knocked on the door, and said, told you. You know, like, what, was this like an older brother to the younger brother? We don't know. But something profound happened in James's life when he saw Jesus alive. Because you see in Acts 1.14, when Jesus then ascended into heaven, when you have the first gathering of, of the church, of people who, who were following Jesus, James is there. And you keep reading through the book of Acts, and in Acts chapter 15, James is the leader of the church in Jerusalem. 
The Apostle Paul calls James a pillar of the church. He was known as James the Just. He was known for doing the right thing and being a man of integrity. And he was also known as Camel Knees. I don't think it had to do with how he played basketball, but I, I think it meant that he was on his knees so much. He was a man of prayer. So you see a complete change in this man's life. That gives you some background of who's writing this book that we're going to be studying so much. In fact, when he introduces himself uh, in James, um, I'm sorry, I lost my place here. In James 1.1, he introduces himself as a servant of God and a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's such a humble man. And instead of being a rival with his brother, he is now serving his brother. And he doesn't jack up his resume as he opens the letter, I'm the brother of Jesus, and I knew he was the Messiah all along. You know, he just, just right away just acknowledges, I'm a servant, and this is what my life is about now. I serve Jesus Christ. And it's interesting to see who he's writing to. He says, James, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Okay, what we think that is, is he's writing to Jewish Christians who, when you read in Acts chapter 8, there was intense persecution that came on the church. And so all these Christians had to flee. In fact, as you're seeing all those images of people fleeing the wars in Iraq and Syria, I can't help, and I've been reading James, getting ready to teach James to you guys, just can't help to think there were some similarities there where we see families just grabbing literally all they have on their back and just fleeing the persecution of ISIS. It's very similar to what these Christians have gone through that James is writing to. So you, you know this is uh, not an easy time for these people. These people are going for, through many stressful things. So to that audience, this book is written. And again, to, to show them what real faith is and to encourage them to continue to live an active faith. And that's a great message for us today. So here's, here's how the book starts. Right away, just right out of the chute. Verse 2, he says this. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. I think you're getting, you're getting the tone already. James doesn't mess around. Like, he just gets right at it. And he's not like, oh, you guys, you must be going through a lot of hard times. There's your, he's just like, look, just count it joy. Let's go. Like, suck it up. We're going to count this joy. And so he's, let's go. Dig into your faith and let's, let's roll here. And so that's the tone you get right away. And so we're going to look for, okay, James, what are you saying we should find joy in? Even in our trials, what can we find joy in? There's a couple things we pick up from the text here. First of all, he says that um, our faith is going to be tested in trials, and that's a good thing. Uh, trials are inevitable. He says when trials come, not like if you're one of the rare few Christians that get trials. No, he's saying when you get them. So if you're not going through trials right now, cheer up, they're coming, okay? So they're coming your way. When you face trials, they're inevitable. And he says you're going to face various kinds of troubles. Um, I, you know, one of, the, one of the things about being a pastor is I just get to hear a lot of stories. And some of the trial stories we go through, I think, are hilarious. And you would say, too, like, because like I could see these things happen to me. Like the dad who was at a water park with his kids, very, very crowded water park. And he's getting out of a lazy river with an inner tube around his waist. And he just pulls the thing down. And before he realizes it, his suit goes down with it. 
and he's trying to like, what do you do? And he's trying to get his suit around the tube, but he couldn't pull it up, you know, and just the absolute embarrassment. You go, oh my goodness, like told me that story. I just died laughing. <laughs> or, or, or the guy that um, the night of his engagement, he's at his girlfriend or his now fiance's house spending the night with their parents for the very first time. And so he has a propensity to sleepwalk. And of all nights, he sleepwalks on his first night in his future in-law's house in his underwear, walks into his future in-law's bedroom, <laughs> rubs up against the future father-in-law's arm was over the edge of the bed, and he feels this leg brushed up against his arm. And then this guy continues to walk through the house, and he's hilarious. He says, when he came to, he's in the living room standing face-to-face -face with his future father-in-law in his underwear, and he goes... Sir, I have no idea how we got to this place, but I am incredibly embarrassed right now. So they did get married. It's all good. Like they're all, they're all good, but wow. You know, so you hear some of the things that just happen because it's us or it's who we are. We're just, you know, you know, I just wonder if God just looks at us sometimes and just howls. You know, he's laughing at some of the things we go through. Or there's maybe the trials that are a little more like the inconvenient trials, like uh, you accidentally drop your mom's cell phone into a glass of milk, things like that. Or, you're, or maybe the more painful time, like you're in the middle of the night trying to go to the bathroom and you step on a shoe in your room and you absolutely shatter your foot. Like that, that stuff happens. Um, or there's the more painful kind, like you lose a job, like uh, you're diagnosed with cancer. I mean, various trials. James is saying, look, I'm not just talking about the goofy ones, the funny ones. He's saying all kinds of trials are coming your way. And you can count all of those joy because your faith is being tested. The Greek word there for being, your faith being tested meant that, that it's a test to demonstrate the value of something. That one thing that's revealed right away when you face a trial is how strong is your faith. I've heard the expression before that it's, our lives are like a cup. Like if you bump into somebody and they've got a cup of coffee, then coffee's going to spill out. Whatever's in that cup is going to spill out. Well, our lives are like that too. A trial is like something that bumps us. And what just flies out of our lives is an indicator of what's in our hearts. And so trials can be good because they can show us, is there a faith in God in our hearts? Uh, or what comes out when we get bumped? So our hearts are tested. Our trials test our faith. We can rejoice in that. And then the next thing he says you can rejoice in is that you can rejoice because tested faith can become steadfast faith. So the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. That every time your faith is revealed and you realize, man, I can trust Jesus in this. I've got to trust Jesus in this. What God is instilling in you is this concept of steadfastness. It's a concept you see in other places of the Bible of standing firm, of standing strong that nothing can knock you off course, that you are resilient, okay? So your trials test your faith. Tested faith, as we continue to learn and grow from them and put our faith in Christ, can cause us to become steadfast. And then the result of that is that steadfast faith leads to spiritual maturity. He says, let, steadfast, let steadfastness have its full effect so that you can become perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. What God is doing in the face of all of our trials is that he is making us strong. He is making us mature. In fact, when you see those phrases used in other places in the New Testament, 
it's that God is, is strengthening you so that he can use you. It's like you're a, an athlete on a football team. He is running you through drills and conditioning because he wants to get you in the game. He wants to use you. In fact, you look through the Bible, the people in the Bible that God used greatly fought through many trials. You know, it's through those trials that God produced maturity and completion in their lives, completed strength in their lives. And so there can be joy in that. And so just like uh, when you lift, you lift weights, you're, you're, you're in, in a sense hurting your muscles, you're tearing them apart, but what you're seeing is on the other side of that is that you're going to get stronger. So that's the way we view trials. I read, I read something this week in the Press Citizen about Brent Metcalf, and he's a wrestler. He used to wrestle for Iowa, and he was a very successful collegiate wrestler. Brent is here on some Sunday mornings. I've been might be here now. So, but I read something in the paper where he's been competing internationally and recently didn't do as well as he could. And the headline in this article by him or about him uh, says that I need to learn to be a better wrestler. And I just read that. It's like, wow. Like, I, you destroy me in about two seconds, right? Uh, you have done so much, but there was still that hunger to grow and to compete. And I was just thinking, what would Brent Metcalf need to do to become a better wrestler? and just what he has already done, and yet that hunger to push himself even more physically, to wrestle and learn new techniques and all of that, just that hunger to become one day an Olympian. And that would be awesome, just knowing his story, knowing the people around him that have encouraged him and walked with him for many years, how awesome that would be, you know, for a Hawkeye, for somebody who goes to Parkview to be an Olympian, how awesome that would be. But here's that, I don't want to see a lot of you guys in singlets anyway, but like that's not our job to become like Olympian wrestlings. But here's, here's the call God has on you is that his plan for you is to conform you into the image of Jesus Christ. And I don't know if you knew this, but the day you start following Jesus, you become a Christian, you put your faith in him. God's agenda for you is not that you'll be comfortable or that your life will be easy, uh, but that you'll become more and more like Jesus Christ, that you will be mature, that you will be complete. And what God does is he uses trials to, to get us there, to strengthen us and to make us men and women and students that are like Jesus Christ, that he can use to reach out to a world that is hurting and that is going through, through trials. So um, that's, that's what it's about. That's God's agenda for us. And, and I would imagine that the people in your life that you look up to the people that are those role models for you, the ones that are pillars for you, when you hear their story, you know that they have walked through trials, that they have walked through adversity. And the reason that they've had that influence on you is because of the things that they have learned as they have walked through hardship. A guy I'll never forget meeting was on my first uh, true international trip where it was out in the sticks. We were out in the sticks of India and I was traveling with this man named Dave Graffenberger, and I just remembered him. He was a, a missionary my family had supported as I was growing up, and I heard stories of him. I knew that he lived in Haiti. I knew that he had lost a 12-year-old daughter to a brain tumor. I'd heard all these stories of him, but now that I was older and I was on a trip with him, I really got to know him in two weeks of traveling through the backwoods of India. And here I am right out of seminary thinking like, okay, I got this. I got all the, you know, I got all my classes. I'm just ready to go serve Jesus. Uh, Dave Graffenberger taught me a bunch. 
in just two weeks. Our first night in India, we're sleeping on the floor. Uh, there weren't beds for everybody. I think he said, Doug and I will sleep on the floor. I'm going, great. Yeah, me, Doug and I will sleep on the floor. But so we're on the floor covering ourselves with some kind of netting, whatever it was, to protect from the bugs. When I woke up in the morning, I'm not a netting expert, apparently. My netting came up, and I was covered with bites, like, all over me. And apparently, whatever got me also got Dave, because I got, I was like, oh, crap, look at these bites. And Dave's over there. He gets up, and he looks. He goes, praise the Lord. I'm like, that has got to be an act. Like, there is no way you're saying praise the Lord about bites all over your body. But the next 10 days of just traveling through some of the university, man, that guy had a passion, that guy had a joy, that guy had a strength. I, I just, you know, I felt like I just wrestled Brent Metcalf. I was like, whoa, I have got so far to go. But that fired me up. Like, I want to be a guy like that. I, want, I don't want to be knocked off by just little things in my life. I want to be passionate so that I can help others. I mean, the reason God is able to use Dave in various parts of the world is that he had learned to trust God in the midst of trials. That's what God is about in our lives. And so the perspective is, when we take a look, that's the reason James says you can rejoice in your trials because God's up to something. God's got a great plan for you and that he is forming you more and more into the image of Jesus Christ. And so we, we, we can rejoice in that. That's, again, not easy, but here's James right out of the chute to a bunch of people going through a hard time. He's saying, consider it joy. Then I love what he says next in verse 5. Because this is me. Put my hand up first. He says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. I think James knew, okay, so you having a hard time buying this right now, that you can rejoice in your trials? James says, if you need wisdom on this, you know, God will give you generously, just very generously, will give you wisdom. Just seek him. In fact, the verb tense there means to keep asking him. Like James realizes this is hard. It's hard to have that perspective in the midst of trial. Our natural response is, God, get me out of this. God, stop this. God, what are you doing here? But James says, ask of God. Keep asking him, and he'll give you wisdom. Uh, God won't always explain why you're going through it, but God will remind you that he is in charge, that he has a plan, that he loves you, that he's growing you, that there's a purpose behind this. You pray, and you pray, and you pray for his wisdom. We need God's perspective because our perspective is so limited and so that's verse five if you're having a hard time rejoicing in trials ask God for wisdom he'll give it to you generously I love the phrase there too where it says he'll give it to all without reproach the best way to say without reproach is that God won't roll his eyes at you he won't go oh come on just deal with it like without reproach just means like you need wisdom I got here you go I'm giving it to you I, I'm hearing your cry I'm hearing you're in a desperate spot. Let me, let me give you wisdom, okay? That's verse five. But here comes a warning, verses six through eight. He says this, but let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways. We gotta break this down a little bit. James is saying, okay, ask, ask for wisdom, God will just give it. He's generous and all this. But when you ask, don't doubt. That's, that's a little scary because you go like, okay, when I'm in a hard time, man, the doubts are flying. And I think God gets that. I see that throughout the Bible. You see that in the Psalms. You see that in a guy like Jeremiah in the Old Testament, a guy named Habakkuk in the Old Testament. Like these guys just wondered, God, what are you doing? Look at the hardship in my life. Look at the hardship around us. God, where are you? And so 
Paul, on one hand, is James say, hey, if you lack wisdom, just ask and God will give you. Hey, but don't, don't be doubting, okay? So I think what James is talking about here is don't be a double-minded person. Like don't, and I think what he's describing here is, and maybe you fall in this, I fall in this sometimes, that you chart your prayer lives and when you're going through a hard time, man, you are, oh God, oh God, if you do anything, if you get me out of this, it's almost like God is our good luck charm or our go-to in a hard time. But when things are good, man, we're just kind of, we're kind of flying on our own. Or a double-minded person might go to God once, come on God, get me out of this. And when he doesn't, you just go, well, where else am I going to look to? Who else, who else is going to help me out of this? That, that's what he's referring to, a double-minded person that, yeah, a little bit of God, but I'm going other places too to find help in this. You know, my, my hero, one of my heroes in the Bible, I don't even know if we know this guy's name, is a guy that Jesus ran into in Mark chapter 9. This is a man that, um, this is a man whose son had been uh, influenced by a demon, possessed by a demon. This demon was even throwing his son into a fire. And so this man was desperate. He wanted someone to help his son. Jesus' disciples tried to pray. Nothing happened. And so now Jesus rolled in, and so this man is having a conversation with Jesus. And I'll just pick it up, y'all, the verses on the screen. Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And the father said, from childhood. And it's often cast him into the fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Uh-oh, he said, if you can help us. Look at verse 23. Jesus said to him, if you can all things are possible for one who believes. Then listen to the father's response. Love it. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe. Help my unbelief. That's, that's, that's not a double-minded man right there. That is a man who is desperate and he's coming to Jesus and he doesn't understand what's going on with his son. But he's pleading with Jesus. And Jesus, I want to trust you. Help me. Help me in my unbelief. I think, I think the key to all this is Proverbs 9.10. It says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Fear of the Lord means awe, that you see God for how great he is, how awesome he is, that you wouldn't even think twice of going anywhere else for help because you are in awe with how amazing God is. And so that's the beginning of wisdom, is that when you see how amazing God is, you run hard at him. And I think so. I think God's good with if you run hard at him and you're asking him questions like, God, I don't get this, why? But I'm trusting you. Or God, I don't understand why I keep praying to you, nothing's happening. Or I look around and everybody else's lives are going, great, God, I don't understand that, but I'm trusting you. That's not double-minded. That's help me in my unbelief. And so James said, you're going to need help. When you're in a trial, you can rejoice in it because God's got a plan, but you're going to need help. And God wants to give you wisdom so that you'll walk through that trial. You know, there's a phrase in that where, where James says, um, and let steadfastness have its full result. Let it. In other words, there's a chance that you could go through a hard time and, and it won't do anything for you because you're, you're responding wrong. You're, you're responding without faith and asking for wisdom. That would be scary, wouldn't it? Like it's one thing to go through a hard time, but what if you went through that trial and you didn't let it have the results that God could do from it. But God says, ask me for wisdom and I will give it to you generously and I will give it to you without rolling my eyes at you. I want to help you through this, all right? And so the last thing I want us to look at is a powerful lesson that what God's wisdom teaches us is when you're going through a hard time, what do you cling to and what do you let go of, okay? What do you cling to 
and what do you let go of? So uh, verses 9 through 12, uh, he says this, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. We're going to stop there. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. Um, he's going to contrast this in verse 10 with the rich man, but this word in verse 9 doesn't mean po- like money poor. It means uh, somebody who is overlooked, somebody that the rest of the world will look at and go, is that all you got? Is that all, is that all you're trusting in? The lowly uh, man, the lowly brother, what he's saying is, if this world looks at you and all you're clinging to is God, all you're clinging to is Jesus, and this world's going to look at that and go, yeah, right. So where's the real help going to come? Where's your money? Where's your friends? Where's your connections? Like all those things. It's like James says, no, if, if you are lowly, if you are humble, if you are clinging only to God, you can boast in that because you will be, you will be exalted. You are on the right path. In fact, verse 12 talks about that the man who stands strong in, um, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. It was, that phrase was used of somebody who wins a race. They get this crown at the end of the race to show that they were the victor. Uh, what James is saying is, is, if you are clinging, if you are, the rest of the world would say, you're lowly, you're only believing in God. If you believe in God, your reward is uh, the crown of life. It means the crown leading to eternal life. That means when this life is done, you will certainly be rewarded for all of eternity. But I would say even in this life that you experience the love and the nearness and the power of God. Eternal life isn't just forever. Eternal life is now. And so James is commending you. If you are the brother in lowly circumstances, man, you can boast because you got God and you're walking through this hard time and he rewards. And so the other part of wisdom that comes is the challenge and the warning uh, not to cling to the wrong things when going through hard times. So he says, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, but let the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. The sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flowers fall and its beauty perishes. So will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. The warning here is against this self-sufficient person. I don't need God. I'm going to fight my way through this. Me and my money, me and my connections, uh, me and my experience, me and my, I'm just going to tough it out. Like, there will be a day where you will face a trial that you and your connections, you and your money, you and your riches, you and your experience cannot fight it. It might be a health battle for you. It might be one of your kids really in crisis and you can do nothing about it. Um, at some point, you will face a trial that is way over your head. And at that point, you have nothing nothing to celebrate in. He says, you can boast in your humiliation because you have been exposed. And so it's a great warning to us today because James warned us, trials are inevitable. And so you see God in the midst of those trials for wisdom and then his wisdom, he's going to show you, okay, you cling to God and you will receive the crown of eternal life. But if you try to do this on your own, then you will be exposed, you'll be humiliated and your trial will crush you. And that's the take-home this morning. Trials are coming. And the trials will either crush us or the trials will change us and make us more and more like Jesus Christ. And so, man, if James could just pop up here this morning in person and just talk to us, he would say this. You need a faith that isn't just a bunch of ideas. You need a faith that wasn't maybe just handed to you from your family. But you need an absolute faith 
in Jesus Christ who died and who conquered death and how now, now offers to walk with you through all the days of your life to be your Savior. So you need a faith in Him and then you watch what He does in your life as you battle the trials, as you face them. You watch how He grows you and strengthens you and changes you and then you watch how He uses you to enter into a world where there are trials and pain and suffering and He uses you. There's, there's no greater joy than seeing that God can use you to enter in to other people's trials. And so James, writing to these people, fleeing for their lives, saying, consider it joy. And put your faith in Jesus Christ. And James would say the same thing. Parkview Church, 2015, living in Iowa City, consider it joy, because Jesus is with you, and he can do powerful things to a church that is fully committed to him. So let's close in prayer. And... Um, I'd like you to do something in your bulletin. Uh, I saw a lot of these on the floor, so yours might have dropped out. But um, there's an Ignite card in there. And I just, tomorrow night, what we're doing as a church is we're coming together, we're eating together, and then we're going to pray together for about an hour and just move around the, the building, praying in different rooms, praying for different ministries. And so one thing we want to pray for on this Ignite card, if you could take a minute and just give us something. What's a big need in your life? Like what's a trial? What's, or for a friend of yours, what's something we can pray for tonight? Last time we did Ignite, um, it was on the coldest night of the year. We still had 100 plus people here just praying. And so just picture tomorrow night, two, 300 people just praying for you and for your big needs. Could you right now just write a couple things on that card that we could pray for? That's an act of faith. It's an act of just saying to God, God, here are my trials, and I'm putting them before you. And God, would you move in this situation, and would you make me more like Jesus? So give us some things that we can pray for tomorrow night. And let me just pray for you right now. So Jesus, thank you that you love every one of us here. You loved us so much that you died on the cross for our sins. You rose again from the dead to prove that you fought our greatest enemy, and you've conquered our greatest trial of being at odds with our Creator, uh, a holy God and sinful people that you have offered to remove that sin if we put our faith in you. And I thank you that now you offer as well to just live with us, to live in us, to give us the power to face any trial that comes our way. Not so that everybody look at us and say, wow, how awesome he is or she is, but look at what Jesus is doing in their lives. And so Jesus, I pray that this church would be a church that faces trials well because we trust you and that we would do this with joy because we know what you're doing in our lives. And so we love you. Thank you, Jesus. In your great name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Parkview Church in Iowa City, Iowa. Parkview's mission is to love God, love others, and serve the world. If you live in the Iowa City area, we invite you to join us in person for services every weekend. You can get service times and directions, download messages, and get news and information about Parkview Church by visiting www.parkviewchurch.org. You can also contact us by phone at 319-354-5580 or write to us at Parkview Church, 15 Foster Road, Iowa City, Iowa, 52245.